Hello, I'm Oliver Wong. And I'm Morgan Rhodes. You're listening to Heat Rocks. Every episode, we invite a guest to join us to talk about, you know, heat rock fire, flammables. And today, we will be doo-wopping back 20 years to an album that came out on this very day. We are taping The Miseducation of Lauren Hill by Miss Lauren Hill. Shortly after its release, Lauren Hill was asked about the meaning of miseducation. She said, it's a catch. You know, when I thought I was my most wise, I really wasn't wise at all. And in those places I wouldn't expect a lesson to come from, that's where I learned so much. We learned a lot, too, courtesy of Rough House Records and Columbia Records, El Boogie herself, a host of collaborators, and themes that came from a behind-the-scenes story we ain't know about until this album dropped. Themes like hindsight on songs like I Used to Love Him and X Factor, hookups and heresy on doo-wop that thing, heartache on It Hurts So Bad, and homage, every ghetto, every city. In the process of questioning her wisdom and schooling us, she won five Grammys, sold over 12 million albums, bodied the charts, stole our hearts, snatched our edges. But that was then and this is now. If I can quote her, now, now, how come your talk turned cold? And although few will debate the greatness of this album, that's no longer the point. Now the questions are about her worth, not her work. In a time where clicks are built on clicks, it's nowadays when your followers will betray you for 30 think pieces of silver, where our faves are quick to fall out of favor and become sinners in the hands of an angry fan. Say what you say, one hit wonder, I say one hit wonderful. 13 tracks that made us believers and made her a star. The miseducation without question is a heat rock. Dust it off, let it bump, and listen without prejudice. Shout out to George Michael. Miseducation. Happy birthday, baby. talk about the miseducation of Lauren Hill, we invited one of my favorite people in the world, writer and scholar Joan Morgan, born in Jamaica and raised in the Boogie Down Bronx. Joan established herself as one of the nation's premier cultural critics at the Village Voice and then Vibe magazine over the course of the 1990s. And long before I ever got to meet her in person, I was in awe of her insight and intellect, especially when I read her essay collection from 1999, When Chicken Heads Come Home to Roost. Excellent book title, by the way. Seriously, kudos for that. She's currently finishing up her PhD in American Studies from NYU and somehow found time to bust out a second book which just came out, She Begat This, which is all about the miseducation of Lauren Hill. So I think we are in for a very good conversation today. Joan, so happy to have you join us. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. I want to open with this for the group as a whole, which is how you first came to hear Lauren. And I'm going to assume that because we're all around the same age, more or less, it was really when she was down with the Fugees. And what were your initial impressions of Lauren at that phase in her career? I mean, I heard the Fugees. The Fugees were cool. I I liked the Fugees. (laughs) But when I heard Lauren spit, I was like, who 
is that? And how do we hear more from her? I play my enemies like a game of chess where I rest. No stress if you don't smoke sense. Less, I must confess, my destiny's manifest. There's some vortex and sweats. I make tracks like I'm homeless. Rap orgies. You know, I definitely wasn't one of the people who was advocating that they should break up, but I was definitely one of the people like this solo album is going to be a monster. She was just really impressive. And I say that she was as much of a visual intervention as she was a musical one. She was so beautiful. It was like watching America see us, black women, black women with natural hair, black women with darker skin, you know, black women who were common on the streets of Brooklyn, common on the streets of Oakland, but like the rest of the world didn't seem yeah. to, to see us. Yeah. Um, it was like watching like one of us just break through for the first time. Mm. I came to know her uh, earlier. I fell in love with her on Sister Act, if I'm keeping it real. <laughs> uh, before she even got to the Fugees, I was like, yo, she can sing and she can act. Joyful, joyful Lord, we adore thee. God of glory, Lord of love. Hearts unfold then by the time the score came around, I was like, okay. But in that effort, I thought she sort of, for me at least, she eclipsed Wyclef. I was mm-hmm. like, she's dope. You can't grow up black without knowing this concept of, of familiar adoption, right? They're the people that you're related to and the people you cl- you lay claim to. Play cousins, play sisters. Mm-hmm. And that's what Lauren was for me. She was my smart sister, my Ivy League educated sister, um, the one that was woke, super woke, and was natural before there were YouTube tutorials telling you how to be that way. <laughs> uh, the one that would speak eloquently about race, uh, maybe a little judgy, but I still was there for her. You know, I grew up around that time. I was a little older than her then. But for 23 years old, to me, she was somewhere between Light and Latifah. And I really mm. liked that, and I thought I really needed that. Mm. So by the time this album came along, for me, uh, it was a revelation. I certainly remember as a DJ and as a music writer then, her breakout moment, to me at least, came out on the Nappy Heads remix, which was from the mm. Fuji's first mm-hmm. album. I don't puff blood, so I always got my breath. Never had to battle with a bulletproof. Best. They call me Cockweasel, but I still came for chess. I know where Jerry girls, cause I'm not from the West. Don't disrespect to the West, true indeed. I rock it to the East, the East is the sea. The sea that them days back. And Joan, I mean, it's to what you were saying before, it was just she could spit. And, you know, I had grown up on light, I'd grown up in Latifah, as, as Morgan had mentioned. And the sort of Foxy Brown and Little Kim era was not as impressive to me, just in a lyrical tip. But then mm-hmm. Lauren was coming out. I'm like, who is this person? And I did get to meet her once when her and Wyclef, and this was right when they were doing promotion for the score, but before the score had gone 20 times platinum, she'd come through the, mm-hmm. the KALX, which was the college station I used to work at, and she was on a different show. And I just remember being slightly starstruck and leaning over and just whispering, you're incredible. But in the back of my head thinking, you should totally go solo as well. <laughs> I didn't say it, but I was certainly thinking it. 
And I think a lot of people were thinking that, and it's not, and which is not to take away anything from what the Fugees were able to do as a group. And the score, of course, is a great album. All those things, but you could just tell that her talent, I think, at that era was so transcendent. Mm-hmm. And you just kind of wanted to hear what would you do if you were just on your own and you didn't have to negotiate your your creative vision with two other people, whoever else in, was in the room. And of course, that's what led to this album coming out twenty years ago. So similarly. When you both first heard the solo album, what was it that struck you right off the bat, especially in comparison to whatever you thought about Lauren previous to that? In doing the book, one of the biggest revelations to me was that Lost Ones wasn't the first single. Mm. I really, in my head, for the last 20 years, remember that as like the first single. And I was like, wait, this doesn't make sense. There's no video. Like, it couldn't have been. And then I was like, oh, wow, Doo-Wop was the first single. But Lost Ones... As a New Yorker, as like a hip hop head, as somebody that did music journalism, Lost Ones was what you heard first. It was everywhere. Every mixtape, every DJ, every club, and it was like the world just stopped. I love a good battle record. Mm. I don't even know that that's a battle record because there was no response. Like, he just couldn't even say anything. It was just scorched earth. And her ability as, like, an MC, we were just floored. Um, And then because I'm Jamaican, I could hear, even though they weren't in Patois, so to speak, there's such distinct distinct, like, rude gal references in it. So, like, my little, you know, Jamaican-American heart was, like, about to burst. It really was. Uh, One thing I like about that song and I like about the album is that it's peppered with scriptural references, Mm. even in this this song where she says, gain the whole world for the price of your soul. We could talk later about if that's what happened to her, what people Mm -hmm. think happened to her. Mm -hmm. But one of the things I liked about this song is it sounded like freestyle. It sounded like she just stepped in there, had no no Mm -hmm. intention, brought her feelings to the mic and just let it go. And to your point, how do you come back from that? How do you answer, (laughs) I was on the humble you on every station? What do you have to say? And those of us that wanted to know what Wyclef had to say. Right also didn't care what Wyclef had to say. <laughs> if I'm being 100 in here. Consequences, no coincidence. Hypocrites always want to play in the sand. Always want to take it to the full out extent. Always want to make it seem like good intent. Never want to face it when it's time for punishment. I know you don't want to hear my opinion. Uh, Lost Ones was for us. Uh, Lost Ones was a, uh, a sister anthem, and I will always be grateful for that. I have quoted it. Uh, religiously since then. So thank you, Miss Hill, uh, for that gem there. One of the things that surprised me the most is, Joan, I didn't see a solo album coming. I was mm-hmm. caught off guard. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought the Fugees were coming back. Um, I had had a conversation. I was like, oh, no, they're going to be back. And uh, then they weren't. <laughs> and uh, so uh, I was pretty uh, dumbfounded there. But when this came out, the first thing that I thought about it was, Ooh, it's personal. And I grew up in a time where you didn't really emote like that. So there was a sort of a a tug with me, like, is she telling her business? But am I also curious? I didn't know any of the backstory. 
I thought um, Wyclef was her homeboy. Mm-hmm. And so uh, there was a lot of shock to me um, at the themes on this album. That was my first impression, shock. I think that that was one of the things that was, you know, I think because we associated Lauren so strongly as a rapper, that this sort of singing a black girl song was 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 so unique to a rapper to do. Of of I mean a rapper to tell so emotional and personal a story, a rapper of any genre actually mm. at that time. Mm. But just as a culture, we were all moving towards there were as Dream Hampton likes to say, we were so binary. So as <laughs> as as women, you know, you were either you know, this is also the era of I think black women are really feeling kind of written out or the feeling the threat of being written out of hip hop in a particular way. Like this is the era of Ghetto Fabulous. Yes. And so if that is not, you know, I was saying earlier today, when I would go to a hip-hop anything for years, like I would have on Tim's, I would have on baggy jeans. like, And now, like, you know, we're hearing things like Balenciaga and, and Gucci and Louis Vuitton. And I was like, with hip-hop. And, and so there's, whereas money and hip-hop style were never previously connected, now you have it connected. There's a de- there's no question at this point that there's segments of the music that are extremely mono- misogynist and violent. And so we're starting to ask, I in particular am starting to ask, how do you continue to love a thing that doesn't show up and love you back in the same way? How do you justify that? And I think that Lauren was a moment where we really have to ask those questions. Like, we could all breathe. And I think, like, she... At a time where we're worrying, wondering about our place, she just stood firm and said, this in my place, this is my place, kicked open the door, and a whole nation of black women walked in with her. Black girl magic before black girl magic. Absolutely. And had us asking questions, um, and some of them made me uncomfortable because I had to judge myself. Mm. Um, I've said uh, many times on this show that, that I had some years where I found myself trying to defend what some people found uh, not defendable, and that was my biggie love. Not just as a West Coaster. I really had to defend it there. Like, look, <laughs> come on, Morgan. Oh, man. Y- you're from here, right? <laughs> come on now. But but also some of the themes that you mentioned, that there, that, that there was a lot of misogyny that I had to not only defend but ask myself questions about. Mm-hmm. I think because Lauren, um, to me, the fabulousness about her was her intellect, not anything else. She wasn't, she didn't have a weave. She wasn't, you know, dripping jewelry. Um, she represented something that I didn't see um, in hip hop often. Um, and I really liked that and that resonated with me. And to your point, that really personal quality about the album, I was attracted to it, but I was surprised. Yeah, I mean, because Mary drops my life and we're not surprised yeah. because it is very, that that kind of... Again, about Lost Ones, that was another thing that was so unique about it. She got her heart broken. And when black women get their heart broken in music, we're used to a certain kind of tonal quality. We're used to heartbreak. We're used to, like, soul lyrics. We're used to even the rage being funneled through something that's very sort of sonically sweet. And this is pure, unmitigated, machete-like rage. Like, and as a woman, like, you know, who loved hip hop, when I wanted that kind of like battle, that kind of like, uh, I would usually have to go to testosterone and Lost Ones gave it to me coming from another woman, which was heaven. Because I'm, <laughs> I'm a little bellicose in nature. Yeah, um, yeah it, I think that that was it. And you just said something really interesting 
I loved her intellect, but I did really enjoy the fact that she was so beautiful. Mm-hmm. I enjoyed the fact that she was undeniably beautiful and that she was so beautiful that you had these previous like really lily white fashion institutions that had to not just bow down to it, Mm. but were scrambling to get her on like covers. There was nothing that said to her, we see this often with black female artists, is that there's some sort of assimilation. If it's not to whiteness, it is definitely towards a more what we used to call mainstream looks, straighter hair, mm-hmm. um, the manipulation of features. Sometimes their their skin is lightened. And she was so uncompromisingly, I'm going to show up the way I am and stand authentically in this beauty. And so for women who were also doing that and getting absolutely no kind of pop cultural um, validation, it was a moment. And uh, it it brought up themes of, of colorism that exist, because not only was she a black girl, she was a dark-skinned black girl, a brown-skinned black girl, and we hadn't been used to seeing that. That was validation for me, too, uh, because our tones are similar. Mm-hmm. And because she, you know, from my friend said, she always just looks so glossy. Her, <laughs> her skin, yo, you know, we could say black dog crack, and that's true. Uh, but uh, for a 23-year-old woman, she just, to me, looked regal. And it's something that stuck with me. Something else, too, is that, and Joan, you were alluding to this a moment ago, is that especially in the 90s, if you wanted to hear a sort of sensitivity, you want to hear emotionality, you turn to R&B. And there was a gender split in terms of, and this still, of course, exists now in terms of, well, hip-hop is masculine, R&B, at least one component of it is feminine. And with Lauren, she's resolved this divide in a way that at the time it felt like, there was going to be a different direction. And then you expected, at least I did, a bunch of copycats because it was if you were going to be a black woman and you were going to talk about and you're going to be big in, in, in urban music, as they say, you are going to be a singer. But if you're going to be a rapper, well, that's a whole different a whole different path. But again, Lauren happens to consolidate these things. Mm-hmm. And I was really expecting there to be a bunch of knockoff singer rappers to follow up this because that's just how the music industry works. And I was thinking about, well, who are the who are the big singer rappers to follow this? And I just sort of draw a blank for twenty years or roundabout until you get to Drake. And Drake is, of course, nowhere near the singer as as Lauren right. is. But it, it's as if this moment was supposed to happen and it never did. And I don't know if that's because of Lauren's singular talent. There's mm-hmm. just no one who could merge these two, or there's something else. But why didn't we see more singer singer rappers come out of this moment? I think she has a very unique positionality in terms of how she treats not just uh, black music, but how she positioned herself. Um, there are people who still think Lauren's Caribbean, right? Like she's, she's, like she's, not, she's, she's not. She's, she's not. She's from New York. <laughs> but I think that she really saw herself um, as a global citizen of the diaspora mm. and then became a student of global black music. So you can hear in that album that she's listening to Fela, that she's listening to soul, that she's listening to reggae, that she's intrigued by Ethiopia. So I think it really takes that kind of almost musical scholarship Hmm. and commitment to be able to feel so confident to merge all those sounds and then spit. And so her willingness and her embrace was wide, but also her educational process in it is like really, really impressive. A couple of years ago, I was watching a cipher between uh, that group Pro Era 
I liked a rapper named Capital Steez. Mm -hmm. um, he passed away. There was a cipher of all those guys and one girl. Her name is Tina Apex. I'm getting chills thinking about it now because that is the closest thing I've seen to Lauren Hill. She can spit and she can sing. I don't want to be the one to hurt your day, but you can't run away. Gonna see what was said at the lab. So Lita gon' beg for the head. Still mercy, not gon' let. Powerless, how I let. Call for the feds, but it's not going to add. To place, to place, mats. A hard and a light mass. All in mathematic balance. I love, hate, do, a lead. Manage what's to do with me. Never skip the set to let my spirit free. <laughs> Think that's gonna stop me Fireball of energy so let him come guess me It's been a couple of years no one has heard from her I was in prep for this chat I was reading some of the threads And there were a lot of references to Lauren Hill And what might have happened That there's no place for her in this industry now Because of what female rappers are But in that cipher which was like 11 guys She was the star mm. To answer your question, I don't know why there weren't copycats. I don't know why it took 20 years for me to discover Tina Apex mm. or if there will be a place for a rapper like that now. But I think at the time, she was just in a class by herself, um, not only thematically. There's a gazillion reasons why she can't be Drake and why Drake is a different singer-rapper. Yeah, yeah. right, right. That's another show. <laughs> um, but uh, but for me, um, not just her talent, not just because she could spit, not just because she was fire, but she was so smart. And in between those bars, she was drop, dropping historical facts. I mean, there was no place for her then. It wasn't an easy place. Like, she didn't really make sense in terms of the industry formula for what was going to be successful. Mm. Um, I interviewed Jason Jackson for the book. And Lost Ones comes out because basically they go and they take the record, according to Jason, to Tommy Matola, and they play it. And he's like, what the hell is this? I want the Fugees without the boys. And, you know, at that time, as an industry executive, his desire made sense. The score just stole, sold a ton of records. Right. Mm. But he just, he was like, this is, no, go back to the drawing board. And Laura was very invested in, I mean, it was her heart, her baby. And so Lost Ones comes out, Jason said, because... They basically went to another label and pressed up all this vinyl and distributed it on some real thuggy, like, hip-hop-ish. <laughs> <laughs> and it was playing everywhere. And because it was playing everywhere, it forced Sony's hand to release the record. But they didn't even believe that this could that the, it could do what it could wow. do. Wow, okay. One of the things that I wanted to revisit, too, is I think at the time that I first heard the album, and this is very different than my impression of it now, but... In a sense, I was surprised at how much singing there was on it, only because what I loved about Lauren was always her rapping. And I think back in 98, part of me was slightly disappointed that there wasn't more like rap songs. Okay, so <laughs> Joe just raised her hand, and I'm really glad because I felt like it might have been on an island with that. I think nowadays, on a sonic level, so I'm not talking about the, the, the songwriting, the lyrics per se, but nowadays the, the album actually has aged really well in that respect. Mm -hmm. And so that I can really get into the, 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 the singing qualities of it. But yeah, back in 98, it's like, yo, I just want to hear you spit more on this. It's not like it's missing, but I just wanted more of that to be there. But again, yeah. I wasn't alone with that. No, apparently. not at all. I, yeah. was, I, was, I was sad that there wasn't more of her as just, you know, 
it, just displaying her incredible talent yeah. as an MC. Like, I just wanted her to rhyme more. To the point now when people ask me, I think I fought tooth and nail back then to say that it was a hip-hop album. Now when people ask me, I go, yeah, I don't really think it's a hip-hop album. Ooh, yeah, I don't. I think it's like, I think it's an amazing album. Yeah. And I think it stands almost in a category by itself. So yeah. it doesn't diminish anything um, to me to say that it's not a hip-hop. But there's just, I mean, like, she rhymes on what? Like, I mean, I think, you know, three three songs. Yeah. Right. Yeah. right. A couple of verses thrown into otherwise yeah. just a, a singing song, if if you will. And I, I just wanted more of it. And unfortunately, I think because there wasn't more of it, people don't understand how influential an MC she was. Yeah. You know yeah. what That's I mean? That's a great point. When people start to, like, name their top five, their top ten, they don't talk about El Boogie. And it's because... Their reference, they have the, they reference it back to. You'd have to go back to the score to really understand how right. strong an MC that she is. I wasn't disappointed yeah. for more rap. Okay, I love when DJs drop this in the club because they usually tease it with that beat, and so by the time the song comes in, you're just so hyped and ready. Ooh, I'm getting chills thinking about yeah. that now. But they usually just don't start out the song. They drag out that beat yeah. over and over again. And that's what gets you so hyped. Or it gets me so hyped. I'll say it like that. Mm-hmm. To go on a quick tangent, for me, it's really doo-wop does that with the acapella opening version mm. of it. And you just sort of drop that in. And you have to quickly mix in the instrumental beat so that you can have that boom, 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 and then kick it off. So that's what I've always liked about that song in terms of how it can build anticipation. Is it out the most to king? Yo, it's about a thing. Uh, yeah, feel yo. real good. Wait, your hands in the air and lick two shots in the air. Yeah, yeah. We'll be back with more of our conversation with our guest, Joan Morgan, about Lauren Hill's 1998 The Miseducation of Lauren Hill, after a brief word from a couple of great Max Fun podcasts. Our people, don't go anywhere. <laughs> In a world dominated by Dude Bro Movie Podcasts. A world where Casey Affleck has an Oscar and Angela Bassett does not. Only one podcast is brave enough to call bullshit. Who shot ya? With Ricky Carmona. A lot of people don't know Porks, Puerto Rican. Alonzo Duralde. I would eat Oakjaw. <gasps> April Wolf. I want to interrupt and say yes. that the fish man was real sexy. Drea Clark. I have a real soft spot for King Kong. And women of color. I was like, damn! Right, Kugel got final cut! Kugel got final cut! I just felt like the film was so sour and so completely irrelevant to basically anything in life. Who shot ya? Listen every Friday on Maximum Fun or wherever you get your podcasts. Friendly Fire is a war movie podcast, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't listen to it. Boy, I'll say. You know, a lot of people, Ben and Adam, might not initially watch a war movie podcast. What's in it for me, they say. Yeah. I'll tell you what's in it for you. What's in it for you is a biting sociopolitical commentary, uh, scattered dick and fart jokes. (laughs) And a lot of history, like there's the depicted wars, but also the history of the time period that these films were made and released. They're very telling. So download Friendly Fire every Friday from your favorite podcatcher. Or MaximumFun.org. 
Welcome back to Heat Rocks, where we are talking with critic and author Joan Morgan about the miseducation of Lauren Hill by Miss Lauren Hill. Let's talk about She Begat This. Mm. And it's a book about the album in the broadest sense, but it's far less a book about the making of the album as it is really pondering the legacy. Is that, do I have that right, about right? Absolutely right. So one of the things I um, said to my uh, wonderful editor was, I didn't really want to do this and take the approach of like your standard 33 and a third book, right. which is um, really a track by track sort of analysis about the making of. I'm actually really not fond of that particular kind of um Music writing. I really write about that kind of music geek thing. It's there's nothing wrong with it. It's just not what yeah. I do. I really um, am interested in music as an as a chance to write about culture, mm. and so I wanted to really use this um, book as an as an opportunity to do a cultural history of a really significant album that dropped at the end of the 20th century, and we are now almost 20 years into the next century, and so. Yeah, it was a way to talk about the album and a way to talk about changes in hip hop, but also who black women were before the digital age and where we are now and a chance to revisit the Clinton legacy. And, you know, when we hashtag black love and we talk about crises in black love, how do the policies of the Clinton administration Mm. actually set up the stage for the kind of crises that we're seeing now? And then Lauren may not have language that way, but was certainly feels really prescient. Yeah. Um, You know, we kind of went from waiting to exhale to waiting and waiting and waiting. And, um, you know, the the album just opened up the door to talk about so many of that. It also gave me a chance to do a book on hip hop and a piece of criticism that has 98 percent of female music uh, critics and cultural critics. And yeah. I knew no one else was going to do that. So <laughs> I really wanted to do that. So I have two. I have a bunch of questions that I want to ask, but I'm just going to limit it to two real quick. Number one, did the process of writing this book change your relationship to the album? And number two, what were one of the biggest surprises or things you didn't expect to either learn about it or to think about it that came up in the course of putting it together? The process of writing this changed my relationship to Lauren. Mm. I think that Lauren emerges after the album as a very complicated figure for Mm -hmm. some people. And I really had to look back. And take full stock of the fact that she was 23 years old, that we were in the kind of crisis that actually produces hip hop feminism um, and that the call to her, how insistent the demand was for her to save the music and Mm -hmm. save the culture. And what a thing to put on a 20 something year old. And I was really shocked at the number of black women who did it even though Zora Neale Hurston has warned us that we are the mules of the world. Mm-hmm. And so I, um, that was never, I never really had the Lauren come back and save hip hop thing, but I feel that in this moment to elevate her to goddess and icon, some of which I believe she stepped into her herself, right. that in some ways I think we actually inhibited a second album because if you are if you were not feeling goddessy and icony when you did the miseducation and she was she probably wasn't it's a very it's an album that's produced in the midst of a very messy and difficult personal situation the and then you're elevated to this how do you come and you do the second thing when you know that this album came from your 
the truth of who you were and the truth of who you may be after that is not this anymore. I think we put a demand on her that was just insane and that um, if we accuse her of being judgy, then we need to really take some responsibility for not being loving enough. I mean, the parallels between her and D'Angelo are really eerie in that respect in terms of people just burdened by the weight of our expectations, right? And burdened by the weight of fantastic first albums. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I go back and forth with Lauren on this album because I think there are songs where she comes across judgy. Mm-hmm. Um, there are songs where I think she's looking at herself. She talks about um, herself as, you know, her sin to be forgiven of sin. You know, the question has come up for me often. Is she asking for forgiveness on this album? Um, is she expressing remorse on this album? Where is she on this album? And sometimes um, I don't know. What I do know is that uh, to express all that as a 23-year-old, I certainly wasn't didn't have that sort of emotional IQ. Um, it would come a lot later, and I would have been messed up if I had to put all my feelings out on an album. Mm-hmm. So I feel protective of her um, for a couple of reasons. One, because I'm not a millennial uh, so I've got staying power uh, too because um, I am that sort of black girl or I feel like um, we can talk about them but you can't and we can go back and forth over the who's the we but I feel like there's a there was a lot of pressure on that that no one could live up to and I do think um, and it, this is just me I think any one of these, the tracks on this album beats a lot of what's out today. Uh, wh- wherever she was, um, then I just feel like um, to hold her to this standard and some of the vitriol that I hear, um, whatever. I'm just I'm conflicted about that. But but because this album was so important to me and precious to me, it's hard for me to hear a lot of the stuff. Can that comes I just out say though that the '90s were judgy? As all hell. Yeah. yeah. And can I also say that <laughs> hip hop at its core is just like Go everyone just in. makes everybody like we were just like really judgy about everything. That's authentic. That's yeah. not authentic. Sure. This keeps it real. I was there. You weren't. It was part of who we were. This whole sort of I don't do labels sure. <laughs> like like our sort of embrace and understanding now of gender fluidity, that binaries are bad the words like <laughs> cisgendered, heteronormative. This is 21st century speak. Yeah. Yeah. So when we listen to Lauren with a 21st century ear, we have to understand that she's expressing herself very much in the parlance of her time. Right. And I think 20 years is a long time, but it's also kind of short enough for us to forget that we right. were in a very different moment for sure. What is the fire track on here to you? Lost Ones. No oh. hesitation. No hesitation. And you know why? Because I still play it. And I, to be very honest with you, I never play this album from mm. beginning to end anymore. Mm. I appreciate there's not a track that could play while I'm out that I don't appreciate. Yeah. But one of the questions I asked people when I was interviewing was, how do you feel about the album? Everyone talks about how important it was to them. Mm. But when I asked them if they still play it, they were like, no, I don't really. I play certain tracks. And it sort of was like. The relationship you have with someone that you went to high school or college with that you still really, really <laughs> like and you're excited to see each other when you show up, but y'all are not in touch on a like day-to-day kind of basis. Mm-hmm, I'm triggered. 
<laughs> Triggered by that. Uh, What's your fire track, Morgan? The whole album? Um, no. Uh, I go back and forth. I love Lost Ones for all the reasons that you mentioned. Mm-hmm. But if there's a soft place in my heart, it's for nothing even matters. Mm-hmm. Now the skies could fall, not even if my boss should call. The world it seems so very small, cause nothing even matters at all. I'm a D'Angelo devotee, as you well know, uh, so having them both on the track was was really beautiful to me. Nothing even matters, nothing even matters at all. Your love makes me feel ten feet tall. My soft spot is definitely Zion. I mean, I was pregnant and listening to it. Mm. Um, you know, I didn't really realize that everyone, <laughs> more people have complicated pregnancies um, than not. And by that, I mean whatever is complicated for you, whether that the issue was timing or you have an issue with your partner or you wish you had like four more years of being just you and your husband together. And I couldn't, I had a really difficult pregnancy. I I had bed rest. And so my book had just dropped and I couldn't go on book tour. And so I had all of these sort of career Mm. anxieties. Mm. Um, And so I knew that she did too. And so that book became, I mean, that book, the song became anthemic and very healing uh, for me in, in many ways. You know, she was under a, tremendous amount of pressure to not make the choice that she did. And she's Mm. so beautifully saying her conviction. You know, when people criticize her for being preachy, this is the song where I just want to push back because I'm like, this could have totally been a pro-life album. You know what I mean? Like it could have gotten sanctimonious. There are gospel chords in it. I mean, it sounds like you are going, marching to a revival, marching, 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 marching. And what really, it it didn't stop at any of that. It elevated past it and became something that became so anthemic for so many women. Like a lot of people was pregnant in 1998, 99. Like a lot, a lot, a lot of people. Everybody was pregnant. (laughs) Everybody Everybody was was pregnant. pregnant. So, you know. I touched my belly overwhelmed by what I had been chosen to perform. But then an angel came one day, told me to kneel down and pray, for unto me a man child would be born. Do you think this album is ahead of its time, or is it timeless, or is, was it right on time for 1998? I think for 1998, it was right on time. You know, it's it's also coming out of a particular dance hall uh, moment. It's coming out of a particular set of hip hop realities and it's it's speaking to all of that and i think for the audience that kind of grew up on it and it became bible in certain ways it was our way of working through certain emotional things and and learning about uh developing different tools to 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 deal with relationships and and heartbreak so i think it came for the generation of women who needed it most right at the same at the time that it was needed um Sonically, does it hold up as a classic album? I feel like you know NPR said it was like number two, and it and and I, I my eyebrow raised a little <laughs> bit about that. Um, I don't know about beating out like 
Joni Mitchell and Carol King and Aretha Franklin, but ranking yeah. systems are right. are always um, subjective. But right. I know that I can listen to Joni Mitchell's Blue 50 years from now, and I'm still going to think it's a classic album, and I'm going to remember it as much as the first time I heard it. Like Carol King's Tapestry, the same thing. Any Aretha Franklin album probably is the same thing. Like, for me, those things, I am still as in awe of it as the me that listened to it in the 1970s was. And so this is an album I appreciate, um, but the awe that I had for it is not still there. Mm. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Well, you know, I was going to ask, and I kind of feel like this is not a terribly fair question, only because anyone who has followed Lauren's career in the 20 years since has seen its ups and downs, mostly a lot of downs. But I was going to ask, what has aged better, the album or the artist? I, I mean, but now, now that you mentioned that it it lacks the all, maybe maybe the artist has actually aged better. But I'm wondering, but yeah, between the two, what has aged better over these last two decades? It's for me, it's the album. I feel like people are not torn about how they, they, there's no sense of conflict in me or any of the people I interviewed about what this album meant at the moment. Yeah. There's plenty. People have a lot of conflict or complications around how they perceive. Um, Lauren now. Some people are fiercely protective. Some people are fed up with like spending money on concert tickets and having to wait 45 minutes. Other people are like, but she's an artist. I'm like, I'm an artist too, but I got to get to my job on time. It ranges, you know, people, there's a whole lot mixed up in that. And so I think the person is complicated as artists often are, yeah. but the legacy I think is really clear. Along similar lines too. Lauren's loyalists were the first kind of, to me, really fervent fan base that I think we now take for granted in a post-Beehive, post-Nicki Minaj's Barb's era. Mm. But, you know, if you were online in the early days of social media and you said anything remotely negative about Lauren, you just had a fight in your hands off mm. from jump. And what was it about her or the album or everything around that that you think has inspired this kind of really intense fan loyalty, again, 20 years going? You know, I think if you're a hip-hop fan in particular, it's really hard to have an album that you're not pushing something down. Like, you know what I mean? Like, particularly if you're a woman, that you have to push something down. You're like, okay, I'm just going to ignore that little lyric yeah. right there. You know? Yeah. Lauren really allowed you to show up with a pure love. And, mm. you know, as I said before, she feels like the one of us that broke through. Like, <laughs> you, wow, you saw Lauren in some small way. That means that you also see me. I'm fiercely protective because, um, like I said in the intro, the album for me was a revelation. I think I'm probably guilty um, of a lot of pouring onto this album what I needed in the moment, um, who I needed to see in the world, who I wanted to be in the world. And because there's for me, is no second album, um, this to me feels like this is all I have. Mm -hmm. um, the Unplugged album was a little disjointed, so right. I don't cling to that in the way that I cling to this. This is all I have. We won't be having a conversation about Off the Wall versus Thriller. This is it. And so I think I'm protective because of um, 
because of that, I hold on to that. Mm -hmm. And whether or not it's fair, um, I just needed this album to be so much. And uh, so it puts me in a position, I think, of a lot of people. Is that fair to her? Probably not. Is that fair to me? Probably not. Um, I feel like I didn't get a chance to see her grow because a lot of what's happened to her since has been shrouded in mystery and the other part has been in the court of public opinion. No and doubt. I, and yeah. I know that's not fair. Yeah. But if I'm being honest here, I just needed this album for reasons that, you know, mm. I can't I can't describe here, but it's when people talk about visibility now and how much they need it now. I really needed it in 1998, and to that end, I think she was there for me. Yeah, I think it's interesting too that there has been, of course, a generation who have grown up around the album, and we've seen everyone from J. Cole to Drake to Cardi B sample from this. Sure, I can't think of anyone who's ever covered a song off of here, and it's not as if any of the songs couldn't be necessarily. You mentioned the D'Angelo joint earlier that she did. Um, I could imagine perhaps someone trying to take that on. Is there a song off of here that you actually would want to hear a contemporary artist try to cover? I'm funny about covers. I don't really like covers. Mm. They make me a little like, again, that was one of the things that was so genius about Lauren because... To me, no one is supposed to touch Roberta Flack. And there are a lot of people who feel that way. And she did it and we were good with it. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. you know. Really um, good. You know, really yeah. good. That that really says something. Singing my life with his words. I didn't like it when Whitney covered Shaka. Like, you know, I was like, leave Shaka all the way alone. Yeah. I want to hear Morgan's answer in a moment. But since okay. we've gone into this, what did you think of Mary doing Shaka with Sweet Thing? You know what? I really loved Mary doing that. Right here. Part right of, here. <laughs> right here. But I, but I mean, I loved it. But I think it's part of the reason I loved Mary so much. Like... Mary didn't try to sing Shaka's song, but she brought to it, like, all the broken glass, all of the, like, mm. dimmed-out lights in the projects, all of that, like, real hard, distinctly urban black girl pain yep. that doesn't get written about, that doesn't get talked about. You know, Shaka's Sweet Thing, like that was my first sort of soundtrack to a crush. I was probably in like sixth grade. Gregory Butler, if you're listening. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but but um, Mary's Sweet Thing sounded like that Sweet Thing was going to kill her. Yep. And she made it something so distinctly different. Yeah. And I love Shaka too. Yeah. However, I let Mary make it on this. Right, right. Um, I just, lo I just love that cover. But back to Lauren and, and Miseducation. Is there a song on here that you want to hear someone try to tackle? No, I just feel like you're gonna put me in my feelings. You're gonna trigger me, and so just leave that alone. <laughs> I'm just speaking for self because you asked me. But I also feel like the reasons that I mentioned, since this is all we have, just 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 let that right. Yeah. Yeah. Let that be. I'm not saying that no one's capable, but I just don't I just don't want to see it. I feel you. Joan, if you had to describe the miseducation of Lauren Hill in three words, what would those three words be? Black girl song. I love it when they just bam, knock it out, like no hesitation. And I made up my mind to define 
episode of Heat Rocks with our <laughs> guest, Joan Morgan. Joan, where can people find more about the book and more about you? You can find out more about the book um, on the Simon & Schuster website for sure. That will tell you where I'll be next in terms of um, being able to see me and purchase the book and have me sign it and engage and what events are coming up. Um, you can purchase the book on Amazon. If you are in L.A., you can certainly purchase the book at um, Isawan Books. If you are in Philly, shout out to Uncle Bobby's Bookstore. You can <laughs> purchase the book there. Um, and it debuted number one on Amazon in Books on Music Criticism. Nice. So it's really nice. Sweet. And where can people find you? Okay, so I live on Instagram. <laughs> so, and it's very simple. I just actually took my account from private to public. So you can really find me on Instagram um, at Joan Morgan. And you can find me on Twitter at Milfin Ain't Easy. <laughs> the best <laughs> ever. You've been listening to Heat Rocks with me, Morgan Rhodes, and Oliver Wong. Our theme music is Crown Ones by Thess One of People Under the Stairs. What up, Thess? Heat Rocks is produced by myself, Oliver, and Christian Duenas. Our booking manager is Shana Deloria, and today's episode was engineered and edited by Christian. Our senior producer is Laura Swisher, and exec producer, Jesse Thorne. Be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Heat Rocks Pod. You can find a link to our Facebook group on our webpage, heatrockspod.com. And that's where we will post show notes for every episode, including a track listing of everything that you heard today and other goodies. Again, that's at heatrockspod.com. Yo, before we skate, here's a teaser for our final Women Behaving Boldly episode featuring music writer Evelyn McDonald talking with us about Janelle Monet's album from earlier this year, Dirty Computer. Like, you know, any any queer artist faces that pigeonhole and has to deal, and this is why they mm-hmm. sometimes don't come out or mm-hmm. take so long to come out. And I think that it, it, somehow the album became about that. Um, and it's it's about so much more yeah. than that. So yeah. as, you know, Morgan wonderfully said, and I feel like that was a tough act to follow your <laughs> wonderful <laughs> description of, of her and, and the album, there's a lot to unpack in this. And... and but also, I think most importantly, it's a really fun album. Yeah. There are some jams on, on this album that I just can't not dance to when sure. I'm listening in the car, even if I'm in the car. Right, right. So. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.